The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. As we cut down the armor that was in the way, um, we got to know, uh, it was kind of a strange, uh, I won't call it a relationship, but we got to kind of know the different personalities, which is probably not the right word, of the different Republican Guard divisions. And you knew which ones, you knew which ones were strapping on the armor. You knew which ones were there for game day. My opinion, uh, my opinion only was the uh, Medina Republican Guard and the uh, Tawakani Republican Guard, were the, they were the toughest units and they'd fight it out with you. And it was the Medina that were mainly in the way of the third ID. Um, and so, for example, they're, they're SA-6 operators. They were really good and they were really disciplined with their radar usage. They're really disciplined with their shot doctrine. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 46. Altitude. Altitude. Tenor, Twin Airspace, Julie, CU, runway 411, zero, five, clear for takeoff. Sea tide, Altera, zero eyes, we're clear for takeoff, clear for the airspace. Fire protector, please, What's up and thanks for listening in today. My guest is General Mark Kelly. He's the commander of Air Combat Command. Air Combat Command is a busy command. It has over a thousand aircraft at 35 wings across 12 bases with more than 1300 units at over 240 operating locations worldwide. 156,000 military and civilian personnel are inside and make up Air Combat Command. So I'm grateful for General Kelly taking the time today just to share some of his thoughts out of his busy schedule. General Kelly is a command pilot with more than 6,000 hours in fighter aircraft, over 800 combat hours in fighters. He's flown the F-15E, the F-16, and the F-35. So stay tuned for a great conversation with General Kelly. Before we get rolling into the podcast, just a few admin notes. As always, thanks to those who've gone over to iTunes and drop a rating review. That helps the podcast out. Again, something small takes a few seconds, but again, I'm grateful. And if you're enjoying this content, please consider just to drop on over to iTunes and drop a rating review. Thanks. As always, thanks to my Patreon supporters for helping the podcast grow, create more content. If you're interested in additional content, some behind the scenes, as well as some just exclusives, as well as early releases of podcast episodes, you can swing over to theafterburnpodcast.com. There's links to Patreon, links to the shop. So check out theafterburnpodcast.com. This episode is sponsored by Beyond Blue Logbooks, a company founded by a fighter pilot. It's veteran owned. It's a service that I used when I was separating from active duty, and I highly recommend 
For those in the military, most don't track their flight hours. They certainly don't track the number of night hours, number of landings, and things like that. If you're looking to transition out of the military, Beyond Blue Logbooks can help you square away all your flying records. They did it for me. I stand by their work. And if you're not in the military, this is also something that's applicable. You might have several logbooks scattered about. They can take all those, digitize them for you, get everything cleaned up as you look forward to the next phase of your aviation career. Again, check out Beyond Blue Logbooks. You can use the code SENDIT before March 1st and get 10% off your order. All right, with all that being said, let's jump into the episode with General Mark Kelly. Well, sir, thanks th- thanks for taking the time and joining me here. I know you're quite busy and people are really going to like hearing from you and obviously the insight and the knowledge and the experience you have, it's going to shed some good light. So thanks for taking the time to do this today. I really appreciate it. No, I appreciate it. Make sure you write or correct me or edit out anything that sounds stupid. Yeah, with uh, <laughs> 130,000 Cossacks ready to loot Kiev, we just got a little bit going on, but I'm happy to pause and chat with you. This is actually cathartic for me just to uh, chat with folks about something unrelated to force generation for UCOM. So go ahead, my friend, anything I, you want to talk about, it's fair game. I, I can't even imagine. I actually, uh, I was about 30 miles from the border. Uh, we hugged it coming, coming to Paris and uh, some pretty good GPS jamming along the way. So I can imagine, o- I can I only imagine. imagine things you're having to deal with right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, good. No, it's good to see you again. I can't remember. Were you in the don't don't take this offensive. Were you in the shooters or tigers or? I, I was the gamblers, so we were the greatest Gambler. out there. Um, and our time, obviously, Ephesus was your aid, yeah. and down yeah. there, a good bit yeah. flying red air. But I think the last time I actually saw you, I was three feet from your wing, and you were in a Mustang. So I probably was. You know? Yeah, I probably was. I I am actually the worst Mustang pilot I know. I'm always afraid <laughs> with, I'm going to do something bad to the Merlin, and I'm really. I temper it to the point where I fall out of formation. So it just is what it is. Well, you know, I've only ridden in the back, but you know, obviously doing the heritage piece and talking to the guys who fly it and you've, you've flown it, but being a fighter guy yeah. and with over 6,000 hours, I mean, most of the time and everything we fly, right. You can fix it with the left hand, no big deal. And you're not worried about it, but in a Mustang, not the case. I mean, you go to idle, you tear the motor apart, go to max, you tear yep. the motor apart. So quite, quite a different experience, but you've flown it a few times, right? Twice, same airplane. Yeah, okay. uh, same airplane. Yeah, that's pretty it was, cool. It was good. It was really fun. It was really fun. It's just a great honor. And I'll go back out to Heritage Flight here in a few weeks. It butts right up against AFA. Okay. So I'll get there, cert the new Viper demo right. pilot, and see all the other teams, and just wish them well for the new year. Hopefully, knock on wood, the first non-COVID uh, season we've had in a few years, which everyone is ready to do. So yeah, looking right. forward to it. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Well, you know, on that note too. So I mentioned it was six thousand hours flying a fighter, which is no small feat. But Strike Eagle, Hornet, Viper, Lightning, and I gotta say, was it tough for you to go from the Premier Fighter, the Viper, and step back into the Strike Eagle? Uh, not really. <laughs> you know, I would say uh, it's interesting. I'd say the hardest transition I've made, airplane to airplane was from the uh, Strike Eagle to the Hornet because it's literally, since they're both uh, McDonnell Douglas Boeing products, literally the throttle and the stick are identical. They are identical. Really? And all the switches do non-identical things. And so it's like, you know, being raised on a clarinet for 3,000 hours and being handed a new instrument that feels just like a clarinet, except that 
the notes do different things and it doesn't sound good. And I've done both the Eagle Hotess and the Hornet, Hornet Hotess and the Eagle, and it's clown act. Really? Complete clown act. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'd say the harder transition was when I transitioned from the Viper to the F-35. Uh, you can see the Viper DNA in, you know, Temis and other switches like that, but it's just a change in going from, you know, 30 plus years of formation of radar energy comm to manage my data, manage my signature, manage my timeline. And so, but it, it, that was probably, and then the system, some of the systems are tougher in the F-35. And plus, you know, it's kind of a old dog, new horse. And right. so you have to study like, you have to study like a Lieutenant not to be, be part of the problem. Yeah. But you, and so now you're flying the strike Eagle again, but you, so in between for the listeners it was Viper, the lightning, and now back to the strike Eagle. And that, I mean, that has to be a big change it, talking to some of my strike or my, uh, F-35 buddies, they're saying wingmen are coming out, you know, equivalent to like a four ship flight lead in a fortune platform, just with the amount of information and, you know, the technology that the F-35 brings to the fight, they're able to see and sense and just have a better picture. Whereas, you know, if you're working at ABG 68, you're, you're working hard to figure out what the radar picture is. So was that, I mean, interesting transition back to the strike Eagle doing that? It, it frankly, it wasn't that hard of a transition back, mainly because, again, I had over 3,000 hours in the strike, and Helps. so you kind of go back to old DNA, and those those old motor neurons yeah. come back to life, you know. And so when I got here to Langley, what I did want to do, you know, there's very, very few, I mean very few thin wisps of value-added general officer flying, and you have to find them. <laughs> and so... And so, frankly, I was lucky to fly as a GO, as an Allison Wing Commander, you know, uh, flying aggressors. MiG-2, you're dead. I'm thinking, I'm supposed to be dead. Um, <laughs> and when you're, a, when you're a GO and if you're going to learn a new airplane over age 50, a uh, single mission I'm supposed to lose was right up my alley. And so <laughs> that was great. But then I went from Ileson flying 100% air-to-air, 100% training, 100% clean, to Bagram, 100%, obviously, tanked up, bombed up. Right. And pods, 100% combat, and uh, and so uh, a different animal. But then when I got to uh, Shaw as a Ninth Air Force commander, uh, Ileson was great, Bagram was great. Frankly, when I got to Shaw, I wouldn't go so far to say I'm, I was part of the problem, but I was not part of the solution. You know, so that's why that's why I told Ephes, hey, when we fly, somebody else needs to get a grade sheet because, you know, I just am keeping a pulse on Aviation Nation right now as a Ninth Air Force commander. Um, and then as we talked about 12th air force flew the F 35, it was just in a very critical juncture of its development. Um, and then Joe Carlisle and the chief of the time Welsh quote unquote needed a midfielder cause they were blocking shots on goal every day. Uh, so I was happy to do that. Um, and then getting here again, it's just a matter of keeping the pulse on aviation nation. You know, I don't fly that much because there's a lot going on, right. but I do need to keep a pulse. But if you do more than one or two sorties a month, you then migrate quickly into part of the problem because we need to get, I, I can't take Lieutenant or Captain sorties. That's a, that's a foul. And so, but I just need to help get a Lieutenant one more hour and a little bit of range space, and a little bit of training devices and stuff like that. So that's, it's, it's just keeping me smarter as a full-time job. No, I can't imagine. Yeah. Just the amount that goes into being proficient or going out there flying and then doing everything you're doing along those lines, since you have such a good blend Fortune, fifth gen, four point five gen. Obviously, that is a it is a discussion point, and that has been coming up over the years. And that blend seems to be changing. I know there's a lot of politics that go into it, but what is that happy blend 
if you had your say with a unlimited checkbook, what would the force look like? You talking about generational wise, four, four point five, five, et cetera? Yes, sir. Yeah. So um, what I'd say is if you look at the extremes, if you look at the extremes of the force, you know, uh, for example, even outside the bounds of reality. And so if you said, well, you need a capability and a capacity mix. And so if we had unlimited capacity, say say four to 5,000 P-51s, that'd be great because I could cover down all the deployments. Every combatant commander would be, you know, satisfied, maybe not happy. But the challenge was it would lack the capability, the lethality, the survivability, you know, to be effective, especially in the increasingly contested you know, environment. Um, the flip side is if I took that same amount of money and I bought a handful, I won't put a number on it, but I bought a handful of NGAD six gen fighters, that would provide the high end capability, but it would lack the capacity to cover down, you know, or provide enough numbers over, over a big expanse of geography or station time. And so at the end of the day, you need a balance of, of capability and capacity. And so I, I don't recommend we come off our capability requirements and meaning NGAD, JATAM, F-35, Block 4, F-15EX, nor do I recommend we come off our capacity requirement, which is right now around 2100 TAI, total aircraft. Okay. And which equates, once you once you factor in WIC, tests, FTU, that, that comes down around 1200 PMAI, PMAI fighters. And so we're from my chair, uh, peer combat requires three, I'd say three main capabilities. One, it requires a forward blunting force uh, that can compete every single day. You know, that's the Kadinas, the Avianos, the Masawas that can, you know, uh, chest bump with our peer adversaries every day without requiring an AOS movement. They can do it continually. As far as, and the other two capabilities is you need a penetrating earth, immediate response force, so if we send, you know, Raptors um, or F-35s forward, they can show up and there's a strategic message there. We plan on punching past normal airspace into your contested or highly contested airspace. And the third force element I need is homeland defense, because if you're going to uh, bump chest with your adversary, your homeland is at risk. And as far as fourth to 4.5, uh, my opinion is, is that our peer tech, advancements require that we migrate every fourth gen fighter to 4.5 just as soon as we can you know there's just very few environments uh syria iraq south china sea ukraine where a mexican okay. radar and analog sensors are going to handle the electromagnetic spectrum um the other thing we need to help folks understand is that fifth gen sensors fifth gen avionics and fifth gen weapons that are on fourth gen platforms, they generate some significant disproportionate disruptive effects, you know, into a peer fight, um, whether it's our side or their side, whether it's a APG-83 on a Viper or an APG-82 and EPAWS on a EX or E-Model, or if it's a AISA and a PL-15 on a J-16, there is more to competing <laughs> and fighting in a contested environment than we normally been is quote unquote fifth gen. And so uh, and then the last thing I would say is, you know, I do a uh, significant amount of messaging on 6th gen, and we have to include that in the mix. And so when you look back at our history, um, even though there was a huge national debate at the time, 
our nation stepped up in the 70s when we we're talking about NGAD. And when you're a third gen Air Force, uh, fourth gen is NGAD. It is the next yeah. generation. And our nation really stepped up even through the hollow force budgets and we fielded, you know, not only the Eagle, but the Navy fielded, you know, the Tomcat. Our nation stayed at the forefront of air superiority. You know, Desert Storm, we presented the Iraqis three really bad choices. Get airborne and be killed, stay on the ground and be killed, or flee to your sworn enemy, Iran. Yeah. You know, so the performance during Desert Storm is essentially what led the Iraqi Air Force to literally bury the Air Force in 2003, because they knew those were their three options, so they picked a fourth. <laughs> um, you know, so in the late 90s and 2000s, you know, we lacked a peer adversary. And so if you compared to that, to the effort of in debate to fill fourth gen air superiority, it's even tougher without an adversary or an obvious adversary to feel fifth gen F-22. But then after folks had either flown it or flew alongside it in a red flag where the Raptors carved a path to the target for you, right. or you flew against it as you know an aggressor and it got shot in the face, <laughs> uh, people started to understand fifth gen, what it really meant. And our allies took note as well and joined us with the F-35, obviously, but our adversaries took note. And obviously that's why they're developing their own fifth gen fighters. And so now we're kind of back in the discussion and debate or the relevance requirement for sixth gen air superiority. And so, uh, except for the fact that I turned on the news this morning and saw that there's uh, Olympics going on in China and opening ceremonies, I really don't know what's going on in China today, but I can tell you what's not happening in China today. They are not remotely debating uh, the relevance and requirement for sixth gen air, air superiority. And they are what I would say on plan. I'll leave it at that. And yeah. so we're doing well, but that capability capacity mix is a lot of art and science and it's an everyday discussion. You mentioned, you know, what's going on in China. So I was, I was there just a few weeks ago and I'm, I'm there constantly and you see what appears to be right. Like they have a plan and it's a very long-term plan and they're marching towards it. And that is a discussion point. Again, it it's political, but it seems like we have a very difficult time, you know, having a long range plan. We have different constraints and different setup, but how would you say, we are looking when it comes to fielding and measuring up to their game plan. What are some of the things that, you know, the U S air force DOD is doing to make sure that we march alongside and we can match near peer adversaries? No, a really good question. Again, that also kind of, kind of, uh, consumes a lot of discussion time and bandwidth when you talk about, um, you know, peer adversaries and integrating, new technology and those emerging threats. And so if you kind of look back and if you read a lot of articles about, hey, technology's happening faster than ever before. Um, are, we, are we incorporating that technology faster than ever before? Um, you know, the answer I would give you, which sounds kind of like an it depends answer is, well, it depends. It's a little bit, it's a little bit of a yes and no. And I think most people would say yes uh, to that. I frankly, with respect to United States Air Force technology fielding, would be the outlier and lead more toward the no camp. Um, and the reason is just mainly because I base everything on the history as it being yeah. a history nut. But if you look back in that realm, you know, the Wright brothers flew in December of 1903. And then 66 years later, after their first flight, we're, we're landing fighter pilots on the moon. Or if let's say you take the hundred years uh, I'd say from World War One to today, or take you know 1919 to 2019. Just take that take that century. Uh, so 50 years after the Lafayette Escadrille and 
Raul Lufberry's flying Newport 17s with a max speed of 100 knots. You know, besides the moon landing in 1969, you know, we, the United States Air Force, are operating the SR-71 out of Kadena and Mildenhall and elsewhere and over Mach 3. And in the 50 years since the moon landing and 50 years since SR-71s were flying at will over Soviet territory, and especially in the past 30 years, the age of our fighter force has gone from around eight years uh, to around 28 years. So I'd argue that our tech development may be happening faster than ever, but we are not fielding new tech faster than ever. And so where I would say yes to the yes and no question kind of goes to your original uh, premise is that I'd say yes uh, to our peer adversary, namely China. You know, 30 years ago, um, United States Air Force F-15s had just swept the skies over Iraq and Desert Storm. And the Chinese Air Force were flying aircraft like, you know, F-8 Finback, you know, utilizing PL-2s, essentially a MiG-21. Um, and now they're obviously fully equipped with fourth and fifth gen fighters um, with significant air-to-air sensors, cutting-edge weapons, guided by really robust command and control. So again, some yes and some no, but the, at the end of the day, you have to want it more than the other side. And so... Um, a daily, daily uh, focus area and the daily, daily discussion that I have with too many people in too many small rooms up in uh, D.C. Do you think it's one of those things, you know, so for a, you know, a lower level guy like me, you know, like this morning, I spent 30 minutes trying to generate orders with a system in the reserves that you know, the website says is last updated in 2013. And this is something that is used across the board. And as you mentioned, we don't really feel technology very fast or implement it very fast. Is there a way to overcome that? Is that, I mean, I know it's a discussion point, but what is the fix to things like that that are relatively small and minor, but I think they translate across the board from small scale stuff to big scale stuff, if you will. Yeah, it, it is tough. If you talk in the bigger scheme of whether it be this, this, the DTS that's nibbing at your heels, you know, <laughs> things like that, generating orders. Uh, I don't know what it looks like in hell, but I'm pretty sure you have to file a travel voucher by DTS uh, once you get there. Um, But uh, if you ask the bigger question of how is we as a nation or how we as an Air Force or how we as an economy or how you name it, how do we beat or match, you know, a a focused peer adversary? Um, I'd say you kind of have two or three choices as a nation. Um, first, like I said a minute ago, you have to want it more, you know, you have to have a national sense of urgency. Um, unfortunately we as a nation, uh, and most other nations in our, like our NATO alliance, we don't normally generate a national sense of urgency until this strategic setback or perceived challenge, you know, strategic setback could be Pearl Harbor, 9-11. You might say the space race was really more of a, a strategic challenge, Cold War, strategic challenge, what's going on today in Ukraine, strategic challenge. Um, But in this age, waiting for a strategic challenge or strategic setback to generate a national sense of urgency is is challenging business. I would not not to be recommended. Um, (laughs) But if you don't generate kind of a bottom-up national sense of urgency, uh, I would offer the second way that you match or beat a peer adversary is you kind of have to develop a top-down national priority effort. Um, I'd say the best example of, in our nation of a top-down national priority effort uh, was probably in the late 30s when President Roosevelt, he knew the German atomic weapons efforts, actually got a letter from Einstein 
through all of our national scientists, uh, the director of the Manhattan Project. You know, and so that's how we managed to stay ahead. So it's either bottom up or top down. Uh, China has adopted the national sense of urgency top down effort, uh, where they frankly uh, they reduce their land army in half to build up their air, naval, and space and cyber forces to directly compete with the United States. And that was, you know, that direction was given and they knew to run the play the coach sends in. And so that's what they're doing. The, the third way I'd say is if you don't have a bottom up or top down strategic national effort, um, the way that we, we can possibly beat or match a peer adversaries, you frankly have to expand the definition of quote unquote we. Um, you know, when we is just the U.S., we sometimes restrict access to our closest allies to our highest capability. And the example I'd give you is, you know, we didn't export F-22 um, for reasons that um, are probably outside my knowledge base. But when we do that, whatever technology security risk we mitigate, in my opinion, especially today's age, I think it gets rapidly outweighed by a bigger security risk of a kinetic defeat. Um, I see some improvement in this area with AUKUS. You know, we just signed uh, the agreement uh, to share our uh, sensitive nuclear uh, tech boat technology with Australia, and, and that's significant. And I think we'll continue doing that. So short answer to your question is how do you beat um, a peer adversary uh, besides the ankle-biting DTS uh, type <laughs> things is, uh, I see some national recognition of threat. Uh, I believe it's short of the national sense of urgency and short of building the Air Force and Navy we need. I see some top-down direction, and I see some increased allied engagement. I, my opinion is we're going to need all three uh, going forward, and, and, and hopefully they accelerate. Each one of those lines of effort accelerates faster every day. So there are two, uh, two avenues I want to go down. One, I, I do want to talk about what keeps you awake at night. But first, before we do that, going along the ally piece, because I remember uh, Rio Negro, Colombia, I was flying a demo there. You happen to be there with the entire, it seemed like the entire Colombian Air Force and their, a lot of their defense department. Uh, I was supposed to fly. They canceled me based on, you know, I think air traffic became a big deal. We, we ended up working it out and going to fly. But it was a big piece, I think, for us to be there and to fly, kind of show solidarity, obviously showcase for their neighbors who their allies were and who they're supporting. Then also, I, mean, I imagine there's a piece of trying, you know, they're trying to upgrade their Air Force, get them on, on the Lockheed train flying similar type aircraft, get them to fly the F-16. So yeah. can you talk a little bit about, you know, that ally building, obviously the F-35 is being exported. We didn't have export the F-22. But what is the importance, especially today, with having capable air forces, allied partners, as we go out there to meet some of these challenges? What's that importance? It, it is important. And there's uh, allies that are uh, interoperable. They can, you know, we bring them into Red Flag Nellis, Red Flag Alaska, as you know. And, they, they, and they're pretty uh, plug and play to be interoperable with us. Um, but what you have to do is you have to seek out um, and encourage not just interoperable, but interchangeable. What I mean by that is I frankly think uh, if we had a RAF or Australian Air Force, four ship of F-35s in one lane and Navy in another and Air Force in another, I think they would be interoperable, not you know interchangeable and interoperable. And so that's the level of capability that we really have to uh, seek out. And we have to keep, you know, 
uh, our allies provide us access spacing and overflight as well. You know, as you look, as we look to push forces around the globe, whether it be to a CENTCOM, UCOM, into a PACOM, you know, something small like dip clearance, it's kind of a big deal. Right. Uh, basing and overflight is a big deal. And so these alliances and these partnerships are absolutely key. And some uh, small air forces don't have the resources to field a fifth gen air force, but if they're a professionalized force and they do ordinary aviation tasks extraordinarily well, they usually find a pretty good fit, you know, and they contribute and they contribute as much as they can. I've seen some really small air forces punch above their weight. Um, you know, for example, I, I did an exchange tour with the Australian Air Force. They're 14,378 size Air Force. Um, and they field uh, growlers and F-35s and wedgetail. Um, and so very often I, I talk to different fine folks in D.C., and I remind them that there's an Air Force uh, smaller than 120th of the United States Air Force that is fielding a fourth gen air domain sensing platform. Um, and if we could just catch up with them, that'd be awesome. How do you feel we're doing, you know, as we talked about, you know, China being a near peer threat, what they're marching towards. How do you feel? And, and obviously they're scooping up and creating alliances across the globe and going into countries, giving loans and doing things like that. But they're, they're weaving their way across I kind of parallel it to the Soviet Union, the Cold War days. Is that mm -hmm. something we're concerned about now and how we're helping other air forces, other, other nations build? Yeah, I would say, I would say a lot of the uh, Chinese um, engagement with partner nations is very transactional. Um, you know, money talks. Um, and it's a different relationship building than we have where you seek out other nations that share our values. And so there's a, a value of national values and there's a value of the dollar um, and the yen and the pound and the euro. Uh, they work in the transactional nation building thing. Uh, that doesn't mean that building a school and building a bridge uh, isn't winning some heart and minds in their belt and road efforts. Uh, but I think we have a narrative uh, that sticks with nations that are developing. They wanna determine their own future, you know? And so uh, you look at how uh, NATO Alliance is coalescing right now around the ability for people to determine their own future, whether it be how you wanna raise your kids and how you wanna to go to work and how you wanna elect your uh, leaders. Uh, that narrative, I'm pretty confident is gonna stay strong as we go forward through our partners. But to get to your question, not to avoid your question, uh, yeah, the, the dollar, especially in a strained economy, uh, a nation like China showing up with uh, several million or several billion dollars will open a door or more than one door. And it's, it's, not a, it's not a trivial effort, especially as they start to build out some nascent, nascent bases, but bases nonetheless uh, in Africa and elsewhere. Yeah. And then, so along those lines, I kind of have a, probably a guess and probably most people listening have a guess, but what keeps you awake at night? And then kind of fast forward, what do you think will keep, you know, Comac in 2035? What will keep him awake at night? Yeah. Him or her. Yeah, him or her. Yeah. yeah. And him or her. Yeah. And so I'd say uh, yeah, Comac in 2035, I think, I think you know, um, Comac in 2035 is still going to be focused on providing the capability, capacity, warfighting culture to keep our peer adversaries in check. Um, in terms of high-end capability, um, NGAD, Block 4 F-35s, F-15EX, JADM-SAW, E-7 Wedgetail, they'll all be fielded. 
Um, and that's the good news. Uh, what I don't know is whether they've been fielded in 2035 in sufficient numbers, the capacity piece. I don't know if in 2035 we've incorporated adequate air base defenses. I don't know if the PRC has completed building their kill web uh, or if they've made a move on Taiwan. Those are big unknowns. Yeah. Uh, but the best way to mitigate them is to feel the capabilities in the required capacities and put adequate air base defense over them as you connect, you know, the force in the ABMS JADC2, you know, effort. And so um, I don't think the focus areas for Combat 2035, I, the only thing I know about it, it'll be a, it'll be a more capable, um, smarter officer, but I think the, <laughs> challenges, the challenges will probably be pretty darn similar. The, so on those lines, for you, what keeps you awake at night and transitioning or transforming the force to meet near-peer threats or whatever it might be? Yeah, the thing that um, I think of with respect to near-peer threats and how they uh, shape kind of going forward is, uh, again, kind of waking up every day is the historian first that has to look forward, is you have to look when kind of where we're going with respect to peer threats you have to reflect a little bit on where we've come from. You know, in 1991, uh, from the U.S. Air Force standpoint, our force was around 4,000 uh, eight-year-old fighters. They were organized, trained, equipped with superior training, superior weapons to fight a pure adversary, you know, the Soviets. With our pilots flying around 18 hours a month, and they're supported by uncontested logistics, uninterrupted command and control, adequate air-based defenses. So 31 years later, uh, we have around 2,028-year-old fighters um, did phenomenal work over 20 years, but they also acclimated, um, like we all did, to Middle East operations. Uh, we have challenged weapon stocks. Pilots are flying around 9 to 10 hours a month, um, and we need to build constructs to operate with contested logistics, challenge command and control, and inadequate air-based defenses. So the short story is a pivoting in 1990 force this design to fight a superpower to a regional fight is a little bit different challenge than taking uh, a 2020 regional VEO acclimated force and pivoting it to global peer threats. It's it's varsity varsity uh, business. You know the um, in the OTE the organized trained equipped business the the O comes first for a reason. And so besides our current force being trained equipped more closely for a regional uh, VEO fight, our organizational constructs were also optimized, you know, for this type of conflict as well. Our, over the past year, we in ACC, we rebuilt the garrison and combat forward AOR wing structures, uh, restructured force generation cycles uh, to maintain readiness, uh, ops and maintenance constructs, and we've taken ACE, Agile Combat Employment, kind of out of niche into mainstream to ensure that we're ready for crisis before crisis, ready for combat for combat. We establish unity of effort within our flying units before it's required and people meet, meet each other at the line of scrimmage uh, so we can operate from distributed austere locations. And so I'm pretty wide-eyed uh, that you can generate easily generate uh, some change fatigue in the force. Yep. Uh, but at the end of the day, if I'm going to put airmen in harm's way, they've got to have the right organizational structures to win along with uh, adequate training um, and the right equipment. So yeah, it's a daily, daily uh, effort. 
as you mentioned, you know, what used to be an average of 18 hours is now nine hours a month. Fighters are older. What is, is that okay? Is there a fix that's needed? Is training where it needs to be? What, what do things look like? What do they need to look like? Yeah. Yeah, really good question. And so short answer is no, it's not uh, adequate. And that consumes a great part of our focus. When you when you look at, uh, again, I, uh, I don't know if they still have it today. They probably still have it today. I should know this. Uh, but back when I was a young captain, we had a thing called the 30-60-90, which was told how much you'd flown in the 30-60-90 days. Um, mine was normally 30-60-90 hours. So I was flying <laughs> around 30 hours a month. And so we just thought that was normal. And so when I think back about um, you know 30 years ago, uh, Captain Kelly uh, flying only 10 hours a month, um, that you know 30 hours was barely enough to keep me average. And so I can't <laughs> imagine you know 10, but I have to imagine it because I fly alongside young wingmen. That's what they're getting. And so we've got to do everything. So every time I travel around, frankly, I leave for Nellis on Sunday. And frankly, the unspoken objective of every trip I take is how do I get a young wingman one more hour, one more bit in the simulator that's better fidelity, one more uh, ground threat out on the range that's more accurate. How do I make their mission data file reprogramming one day faster, so on and so on and so forth. So what can I do, you know, to make one wingman's life better for this next week? Um, sometimes you make uh, some incremental gains. Uh, it's it's happening. It's not happening near as fast as they or we would like it to, but you keep uh, you, you keep rowing as hard as you can. Yeah. Well, I think you know seeing the contractors land in the fighter squadron, scheduling UDM, mm. uh, those pieces of it. I never saw as the OPM, the uh, massage therapists, the sports you know physical therapists keep people like going. And I know that one's like on the chopping block, off the chopping block, back and forth. It sounds like those are some incremental gains and you know seeing when you have a, a contractor scheduler that alleviates probably two bodies who are off the flying schedule for an entire week just managing the schedule so i know that's that's a huge piece is that stuff staying or is that the things that are kind of marching on to alleviate maybe some of the frivolous things mm -hmm. to allow lieutenants captains majors to stay stay in the vault studying honing the craft yeah yeah uh we definitely want to keep it. Uh, we always have to balance keeping those contractors with getting one more flying hour. And so I, we have to make those decisions every day. I can tell you that the fighter squadrons appreciate them. And as you know this, when you talk about a, especially a small 18 PAA and especially a single seat fighter squadron, and especially one that's TFI and not all the operators are there every given day, um, it can look kind of sparse in around the squadron at the ops desk. And so trying to fill those out and having a couple of people work the schedule is key. And same thing with, you know, the folks uh, who who make sure that, you know, we can still do this at age 60. I wish I would have had them. Um, I can tell you that the human body was not designed for 6,000 hours, and they they use my scans, unfortunately, in a training course. There's no kidding, true story, uh, over at Wilford Hall. Don't tell anybody in the flight <laughs> surgeon realm that they asked me if they could borrow those. And I'm like, yeah, yes, that's a horrible thing. But, yeah, you can borrow them that's to make your flight docs. <laughs> yeah, it's not a good thing. What's the outlook look like that you see in the next few years as far as the fighter squadron, getting them to a balance of training versus quality of life? What is that? What is that shaping up to be like? Is that on the focus? Yeah, the, yeah, the biggest thing we've done um, 
that's been really good. I don't think our messaging on it's been very good, but the biggest thing we've done is introduce, you know, the Air Force Force Generation construct that's four bins. And so people have some little predictability in their life. They know when they're going to be available to deploy or on the earth. They know when they're going to be in a reset bin. They know when they're going to be prepared bin. They know when they're going to be in a ready bin. Uh, and, this, and frankly, the story behind that is, you know, over, you know, over 20 years, um, you know, from, from to the 12th of September, 2001, uh, uh, that following week, we had a violent extremist uh, or counterinsurgency crisis of the week. You know, we just yeah. did. What people don't pause and think about is then we stacked onto it another 1,000 counterinsurgency crises of the week. Um, and next thing you know, we're 20 years down the road from 9-11. And the counterinsurgency crisis of the week became 20 years of United States Air Force readiness degradation. And so during this 20 years, we didn't have a force generation construct to demonstrate upstream readiness and force, ability, force availability impacts. We didn't have the bandwidth resources to conduct all our weapon system mandates. For example, like you know the MIDS jitters Link 16 terminals. And so we literally, over 20 years, ate the muscle tissue of the Air Force. And so, and over those 20 years, you know, uh, a, a, national, a, national, a national conventional capability um, was driven by a reduced United States Air Force combat power. Uh, and frankly, I'd argue, especially, you know, if you look at the news today, there's nothing like an adequate conventional deterrence to invite a peer adversaries to seek and seize opportunities in places like, you know, Ukraine, Taiwan, Crimea, South China Sea, the Arctic. And so when you look out at uh, China and Russia's actions in these regions, they don't act deterred to me. Um, and so w when I wake up every day, um, I believe we can either have a deterred China and a deterred Russia by a conventional deterrence, or we can have a happy, destabilizing, threatening China and Russia. And the key is to reestablish that. Uh, you know, that's kind of a quick segue off of what's the fighter squadron going to look like. But it's really a narrative of why, why did these knuckleheads construct this four-bin model? And that's because over 20 years, there was no reestat and, and, and obvious second-order effect or unintended consequences for an overconsumption of the United States Air Force. There just wasn't. And, and so, yeah, go ahead. No, sorry. I, was, I, I think that's it's a really unique because this is a discussion point all the time. And I don't, obviously, I'm not smart enough to figure out what the fix is. Just looking at it, as you kind of mentioned, 20 years we're focused in the Middle East, you know, just chewing up the resources of the United States Air Force. Meanwhile, peers near peer threats are focused on honing their skills, improving their technology, growing their national influence and their national objectives. And in a time when technology advances so rapidly, like we've never seen technology rap, or, you know, advance this rapidly. It's now we're faced with how do we, how do we meet this? And it seems like it's one of those problems, which we've kind of discussed a little bit, but it, you can't fix it overnight. And it, I question, hmm. is it something we can outmatch or catch up to, or we just can be hanging by the coattails or, you know, just barely, you know, wherever we fall on the line. Right. I think I, I'd say, I think it's fair to say that's a question mark because it is a real challenge and real threat out there. Would you, what, what are your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, no, you're right. It kind of goes back to what I mentioned earlier is, um, will the actions of a peer adversary in around the South China Sea, um, will the actions of a peer adversary in around Ukraine drive not only the national sense of urgency, but a, especially like in NATO, the alliance sense of urgency um, to take serious action. And sometimes that action is what you're seeing now, forced disposition, and, but it's also you know, capability development uh, and staying ahead. Uh, because people don't wake up every day when things, when birds are chirping and rainbows are out, people don't wake up thinking, hey, I really need to commit some more of my tax dollars to national security. You know, we tend to focus on banks, not tanks, uh, very often. <laughs> right. But uh, when all of a sudden there's 130,000 Cossacks ready to loot Kiev, it's a, it's a topic front and center. And so that's an unfortunate uh, product of what's going on now, but it drives serious threats, drive serious discussion. I think we've had a lack of serious discussion over 20 years when it comes to peer adversaries and not until the 2018 National Defense Strategy to come front and center. Even since the 2018 National Defense Strategy, which addressed it directly on, it was a good strategy, we just never implemented it. Um, and so we're starting to get closer to it every day. It's happening, it's just not happening as fast as probably we needed to. Interesting times. Um, yeah. On that, sir, I'd like to pivot just a little bit to, I would say sure. probably a completely different topic, but yeah, sure. leadership in the 21st century. So. The evolution of technology we've already mentioned is, is presents some unique things. Yeah. Social media is one of those things that has popped up, right? And never before are people so connected and layers removed. For instance, I know you're on Instagram, and never before yeah. probably are, are people one layer away from you, your predecessors, yeah. several layers in between. What do you think some of the unique challenges commanders have to face in, in this type of environment and leading in this type of environment? Yeah. What are some of the things you've yeah. seen? Yeah, I mean, I get obviously during my travels, uh, whether it be to you know, ROTC cadets or talking to Congress and everywhere in between, leadership, the topic comes up. And so uh, leadership is normally defined by big challenges. Um, if someone's not up for big challenges, leadership's probably not the right fit. I'd offer that most leadership is not uh, about rank and authority. Uh, it's about leaving an organization and people you know, better than you found it. Uh, it's about conveying an unambiguous command intent. It's about setting a command climate where people can work at their natural best. I really like what, uh, if you follow um, uh, Simon Sinek, uh, he says with respect to leadership, it's, it's not about being in charge. Uh, it's about your responsibility for those in your charge. And so I think, uh, and I'd repeat the word think, that most of our leaders uh, do well at avoiding the extreme bounds of inefficient, uh, ineffective leadership styles. You know, what I, and if you ask me what are those, I'd say the extreme, uh, the extremes of ineffective leadership styles exist where we have folks that are coddling, uh, where someone's kind of running for class president and they measure their effectiveness as a leader as a reflection of their popularity. You know, at the opposite end, we're familiar with that. It's uh, leaders that are caustic or referred to as toxic who measure their effectiveness at raw results divorced from the wellness of their airmen, their unit and morale and culture. Uh, you know, leaders need to be aware of the extreme ends of those and the extreme ends of risk as well. You know, uh, risk averse under the banner of, well, if you never make a decision, you'll never make a bad decision. Uh, 
and reckless. But reckless is normally, normally my observation has been personal behavior versus a unit culture. You know, at the end of the day, our airmen deserve, you know, courageous leadership uh, and leaders that'll love them enough to hold them to a high standard who are responsible for quote unquote, those in their charge, more so than being focused on being in charge. You know, airmen, you know, airmen aren't kids, uh, but they are professional sons and daughters. And I, and just like leadership, uh, and you get to do this with two new young small ones, you know, uh, I think as effective leaders uh, are like effective parents. You have to be ready to and prepared to take a, a hit in your short-term popularity to sometimes do some long-term greater good. But, uh, you know, to your questions on challenges, uh, the one that I, I don't think we were ready for, and I say we, we collectively as a nation, is was COVID. Uh, it's make, it makes everything tougher. You know, I've been here at Langley for almost a year and a half, you know, the entirety during a pandemic. And so there's people here at headquarters ACC uh, that due to my travel, their telework, uh, COVID rules, um, and how they're spread out across kind of the ACC campus. I, have, I haven't been able to walk in and simply say hello, have a cup of coffee with them and thank them for serving their nation. Um, the other one I would say challenges in leadership uh, it is pro probably uh, generational. What I mean by that is leadership will almost always include navigating generational cultural challenges. I mean, ACC has, as I mentioned, 95,000 of the finest people our nation's ever produced. And I'm pretty sure that I'm older than all 95,000 of them. <laughs> but, and we all navigate, you know, life decisions, uh, choices on how you drive, how you invest, how you raise your kids and how you lead from the experiences and lessons, you know, that you've uh, absorbed, you know, through your life journey. And so, you know, I came in to the Air Force and we had a uh, little bit over 130, I think it was 134, you know, fire squadrons. You know, you, you generally knew back then, you know, who were the top 10. Uh, and conversely, you generally knew who were the bottom 10. Uh, the top 10 mm -hmm. were, you know, always in the finals of William Tell, our air-to-air -air comp. They're always in finals of Gunsmoke. Uh, they perform really well at Red Flag, Cooped Thunder exercises like that. You know, these squadrons had all the characteristics that you would read about in books that talk about extreme or elite, you know, teams. Meaning, uh, they first and foremost were high-performing, self-regulating, flawless admin, high morale. The unit standards were high and the unit standards weren't, they were not negotiable. You know, they returned from red flag bulls, you know, backup initial three pristine four ships. Uh, they called themselves out in debrief for miscues, even if no one else even noticed. And then they pushed to the club together. And, you know, the thing that was neat to watch was this warrior culture bleed over to maintenance and all their supporting agencies. You wanted, you wanted to be in these units. The converse to that is the bottom 10, 10 or 15 or whatever you want to say, they, uh, had more flight safety issues. Uh, they often were colored white from the entire two weeks, a red flag. They didn't, you know, they didn't just lock chaff. They shot it, rejoined on it. You know, uh, you know, their, their, their admin was a free for all, uh, from radios, ground ops, high aspect with the tanker, low performance, low standards, low morale, frankly, unsafe. Uh, and, and then that ops culture would bleed over to maintenance. Uh, and support. And so whether it was an exercise, return to base, or going to the club, they came and went as onesies, twosies. You know, you wanted yeah. to avoid these units, right. you know? You know, you wanted to avoid these units. And so 
Here's the point I would make with respect to challenges in generational leadership in leading today across generations, which is important. And that is, uh, from my experiences, um, having been doing this for 36 years, and oh, by the way, in 36, you know, different fighter squadrons, um, <laughs> is the one characteristic, the one singular characteristics that all of these low performing units had uh, that they had in common was what I would refer to as a unit culture of overt non-compliance. Um, a unit culture that normally migrated from the fighter squadron to the support structure, maintenance, and then unfortunately uh, into the air. And once it migrates into the air, uh, it's a matter of time uh, before someone sticks a pedal boom into a rock, a tree, another jet. Uh, if you, you, can, you can review literally hundreds of class A accidents and the root cause is almost always driven back to a unit culture of overt non-compliance. It's not limited to fighter squadron, right. not by any means. And so I'm glad I thought about that because that's not the intent. We've had B-52s cartwheel across Fairchild. We've Ugh. had C-17 demo, jet crash in Alaska, horrible tragedies. But the point is every single time, it stems from a unit culture of overt non-compliance. And so again, make a short story long, uh, you spend 36 years flying in 36 different fighter squadrons and alongside a bunch more, and then spend 36 years not just reading Class A reports, but actually seeing some of this dumbassery in action <laughs> stem from a unit culture of overt noncompliance. It's gonna, it's going to shape the lens you look through and it's gonna shape the lens you see through. It just, it just is. And so those experiences as perspectives are different than the experiences and perspectives of someone who's commissioned in 2010, 2015, they just, they just are, and that's right. okay. And so I have to be witting and wide-eyed about cultural differences, especially when there's MinCom, like I mentioned in COVID, uh, circumstances where, you know, senior citizens, hard life lessons and concerns for the professional sons and daughters might be tough for the youth to understand and appear out of touch or a misprioritization. That's okay, it happens. And so um, that's just part of the part that comes with the territory. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier about different leadership styles and folks, you know, running for class president, it's, it's great if a leader's like, uh, but it's more important that they love their airmen enough to hold them to a high standard, you know, and if you're not willing to take a short-term hit in your popularity, do some long-term greater good, you know, leading or parenting might not be your thing. You, you, you mentioned, you know, social media and obviously a double-edged sword, you know, but especially during a pandemic, I can't do a, base visit and queue up a super spreader all call shoulder to shoulder, right. you know, to message the team. So, you know, social media is one way uh, to message the team. You know, that said, uh, I believe leadership's a full contact sport where um, face look and eyeball to eyeball communicating um, doesn't risk ambiguity or misperception um, to a narrow audience. But if you take a topic online as social media, it's a big audience, which is great, but it's also a free-for-all for anyone who can fog a mirror to pontificate their expertise. And so, again, some of these challenges come with the territory. You, you navigate them all. If you don't have a thick skin, um, do something else, you know? And so uh, I, I'm still enjoying it. Um, and just like, you know, just like in my, my 36 years of flying, I've yet to have a, a perfect sorting. I've yet to have a perfect day of leading, but you just try to uh, strap back in the next day and, and try to find that, that perfect sortie. Yeah. I, very salient points on that because again, 
you know, from 36 years in the Air Force to a brand new lieutenant, young captain who only has a couple of years under their belt. It's just different experiences. And then again, social media, the double-edged sword there. You're connected, you can disseminate information, but also information can be skewed or pumped out conversely. So uh, good and bad with, with all that. But I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on that because, again, today's age, it lends to certain scenarios that pop up that can spread like wildfire, good or bad, um, that I know leaders and airmen, everyone faces. So I joke, I'll, if I share a video on like an F-16, undoubtedly there'll be like 20 comments asking what plane it is. You know, it's in the title. It's like if you didn't, didn't even take the you know, three seconds to read the title, like I, I can't help you here, you know. So uh, you can lead a, lead a horse to water, right? But you can't force him to drink. That's right. That's so. right. Well, sir, before we wrap up, because I know you have a busy day, I uh, this be the kind of the last pivot here. But um, I was wondering if you'd share some of your memories. March twenty second, uh, two thousand three. It appeared to be a pretty busy week for you mm-hmm. and for the U.S. Air Force. March twenty second, March twenty fourth. I know you're a recipient of two distinguished flying crosses. Can you kind of talk to me the the build up there, and then if you can, li- yeah, you know, just share some of your memories of those sorties. Obviously, they're quite notable uh, with being awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, not once, but twice. Yeah, um, yeah, busy time. Um, <laughs> our, uh, our, the plan, the, I actually was working on the plan down at Ninth Air Force, and the plan, which never survives contact with reality, was to bring the uh, 48th Fighter Wing Strike Eagles into Inserlik, uh out of Lake and Heath, and the 4th Fighter Wing into IUD, and, and, Basically, um, along with our other great teammates in the Air Force and the Navy, the Strike Eagles are essentially going to, you know, axe murder the arm the armor formations um, from north to south and south to north. The, of course, for political reasons, 40th Fighter Wing didn't get into Insulik, uh, which is well documented. And so, we were tasked. Fourth Fighter Wing Strike Eagles were tasked out of IED to fly 100, 100 to 104 uh, sorties a day. Uh, and during that time, we were dropping, uh, for about 10-day period, we were flying 100 sorties a day, dropping about um, about 450 bombs a day. And so what our task was, was to cut a path for the 3rd Infantry Division uh, through, if you're familiar, through Al-Nasiriya, uh, up through Najaf and Karbala to the southwest uh, gates of Baghdad. And then the 1st MEF uh, was going to come up from the east in similar plan. There was really really good coordination between the services um, as we cut down the armor that was in the way. Um, we got to know, uh, it was kind of a strange, uh, I won't call it a relationship, but it, we got to kind of know the different personalities, which is probably not the right word, <laughs> of the different Republican Guard divisions. Wow. And you knew which ones, you knew which ones were strapping on the armor. You knew which ones were there for game day. My opinion, uh, my opinion only was the uh, Medina Republican Guard and the uh, Tawakani Republican Guard, were the, they were the toughest units, and they'd fight it out with you. And it was the Medina that were mainly in the way of the third ID. Um, and so, for example, their, their SA-6 operators, they were really good, and they were really disciplined with their radar usage. They are really disciplined with their shot doctrine. I'd say the same for their Roland operators. On the other hand, um, I never saw uh, an SA-2 or SA-3 operator that was not in the, in the Republican Guard operator. I never saw any of those operators who really wanted to fight it out. Really? Um, you, you, yeah, you get a, normally an SA-2 or SA-3 search spike. One or two seconds, it would go to track. One or two seconds, you get a launch. 
one or two maneuvers and they would drop the spike and I think they're afraid they're gonna eat a harm. Uh, I don't know. Uh, they would drop it and the missiles would go ballistic. Um, so, but in contrast, the SA-6 operators, they'd fight it out. They'd absolutely fight it out. Um, but you ask about how busy that time was uh, and I would say there was a lot of good, a lot of good coordination um, from the entire joint team during that time. But I'd say, as far as memories, my unfortunately, I'd say what's kind of seared in my nugget uh, during those 10 days was uh, late March, as you mentioned, early April, were probably the two SAM engagements were unfortunately great, uh, great soldiers and great patriots. Uh, not no pun intended, uh, amidst our U.S. Patriot batteries where we lost a RAF GR4 tornado uh, coming back into Saleem. I think it was around that 23 March timeframe. And then we lost a Navy Hornet uh, around 2 April. And so I, I always flew at night. And as you know, uh, whether it's over Luke, over Nellis, over Iraq, especially on MBGs, you'll see every bright light over the desert. And so I was actually just headed back home on the 23rd or 24th, I can't remember exactly what day, but when the GR4 was hit, we, we didn't know it was a GR4 okay. until we landed. The Patriot just launched and lit up the night and everyone airborne, as you know, in good weather is going to see it track north and intercept. Uh, that GR4 crew was from uh, RAF Marham, just north of Lake and Heath. And so really, really tough loss for the team. Um, the the 2 April engagement was was way chaotic and so we had we had rolled back uh the medina uh we had rolled them from um south to north for 11 days and we thought we were about done and so we we planned an engagement um with the medina remnants of the medina up north of najaf it's near a place called the karbala gap or people will know it from the the big lake lake razaza which is southwest of baghdad and we were teamed up with a, a flight of hornets from uh, VFA 195 off the Kitty Hawk. Okay. And we coordinated with them because um, we had to coordinate, you know, basket tankers, boom tankers and timing and stuff like that. And so this was, the weather had been clear up until uh, around two April, but there's a few weather decks, still not bad, but there's a few weather decks. And so, but the, the third ID was moving fast north. Uh, they're employing MLRS, which, uh, as it comes to the clouds, it looks, it's just another big hunk of metal or rocket coming through the clouds. Uh, the Iraqis are employing SA-6s in the exact same airspace in a very, very chaotic uh, fight. But we were rotating as two ships to and from uh, the tankers and were hitting Iraqi armor as the third ID rolled north. I was actually on the tanker. I turned the uh, fight freak down a bit, but I heard different flights uh, getting spiked by SA-6s and I come off the tanker and start back toward the kill box when a SAM uh, cuts through the clouds, uh, well well north of me, probably 16 miles north of me, but you go again at night over the desert, you know, everyone that could see it trek north. And um, you saw you saw this SAM intercept, the, the guy's name was Lieutenant uh, O.J. White off the VFA 195, you saw it intercept his Hornet. And so, you know, uh, we start the SAR effort amidst all this chaos. Uh, and I'm only there uh, for another uh, 15, 20 minutes, I think. Okay. Uh, I get relieved by another flight of Strike Eagles try to pass off uh, some SA uh, on the link and over the radio. And there was more we didn't know than we knew. Uh, and then we head back home. And it wasn't until we landed that we learned that a Patriot uh, had intercepted uh, his Hornet. Um, I, I think I should have known uh, from the start. Um, 
it didn't fly like an SA6. And kind of, as you guys know, as Sam Killers, the jerky kind of one second uh, maneuver time constant, pro-nav flight path, it was really fast, really smooth, kind of flew like a bullet, hit like a tr freight train. But, um, and you can rationalize the situation with yourself and your joint teammates and the heading of, you know, fog and friction. Yeah. Uh, but that engagement has bothered me for 19 years. I, I just, I can't put my finger on it, but I think we should have known more. Uh, I think we should have done more. Um, I don't know what that is, but it's still something I consider every time that anniversary come, comes around. But a great, anyway, a great uh, gathering of teammates, uh, some of the finest people on the planet operating together to try to get our young um, soldiers north safely and young Marines uh, safely north. And so, yeah. It was, a, it was a, diff a different time than what I do today, uh, but it's still really, still really great teammates. So thanks. Thanks for asking. No, I mean, I can't even imagine just the, the chaos that's going on, the, the technological hurdles you're trying to overcome. Not an easy thing to have to deal with in that time frame. So throw weather in it, throw tech breakdown, not, not where you want to be in life, I don't think. True, true. Well, sir, I know, I think we hit our time. I know you probably have a few other things to do today, probably a few other things this weekend coming up. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Join us, sharing your thoughts. I know people are really going to enjoy this. Yeah, no, thanks. I really appreciate the invite. It's good for me to sit down and, like I said, you know, to try to, try to every day, try to bridge the generational divide. You know, I've been fortunate in this profession uh, to meet and fly with, you know, the greatest humans on earth and um, as I turn 60 this year, I'm still lucky uh, to be enough to climb up the ladder and occasionally shake a young crew chief's hand. Uh, I don't fly very often, as I mentioned, but it's just to keep a pulse on Aviation Nation. Um, if during these visits, as I mentioned, if I can ascertain what it takes to get a young wingman one more hour, a uh, little bit of better training range assets, better sim fidelity, better facilities or whatever they need be more lethal, more survival as time will spend. And so thanks, my friend. Uh, stay warm in the ice. Uh, <laughs> uh, try to get some sleep in between, hopefully, which is the simultaneous feeding right. that goes on <laughs> in the night. And look forward to catching up with you again. Let me know if you need any follow-up stuff. Email me or whatever. I'm happy to follow up anytime. Awesome. Joe Kelly, I really appreciate it, sir. Thanks for taking the time. You bet. All right. Have a good weekend, brother. Good seeing you. You too, sir. All right. Bye. Cheers. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Again, thanks for listening in. If you're enjoying this content, please consider swinging over to iTunes, drop a rating or review. And if you're looking for additional content, you can check out Patreon. You can find that link over on theafterburnpodcast.com. Until next time, don't bring a week. Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain.